experiences. How do you deal with your kids when they do something but they don't know better? Then how do you deal with them when they do something and they know better? I don't know how you. I know how rotten she told me because I was at her house last night before last, and her, her she caught her kids telling an untruth, and it was interesting to see how she dealt with it. They worked it out. They're good girls. They're, they're two twins. But anyway, that's how we deal. And that's how the world works. This is all a reflection, you know, of, of how how the system works. So if somebody commits a crime but doesn't know, yeah, they've still committed a crime and there there's still going to be some repercussions. If I kill somebody but I do it accidentally, then it's not murder, but it's, what do they call it, manslaughter or something, you know. So put the vice president in jail. You know, well, he didn't kill him, but he just wounded him. <laughs> but he could have gone to jail, Right? So negligence, as Prabhupada would say, is not an excuse. And, and he would harp on this to make a point, to motivate us. Prabhupada, one thing about Prabhupada's preaching, it was very oriented towards motivating people to get going. And so he used a lot of, you know, he wrote about it and spoke about it in a certain way, and it was very, very effective. But the idea, once you get going, motivated, however, by whatever, fear is also a motive. You better do this or, or else. And it's a valid motive. It's not the highest motive. But we do operate in terms of it. When they become a lover, then there's no fear. But when you're cultivating love, fear may still be a motive that is useful to draw on, to get you going in the direction of love. So Prabhupada said things like that in a way without you know giving a whole... But now, after so much time, then you know you, you seek some further explanations and and so on. So they see there, there they they do exist. They're available, and then you get more informed, and and you're able to be motivated, hopefully too, as well. Now, see, that's becoming a previously that'd be a motive for him or her who's asking. Now it's becoming as they start to apply their intelligence and think about it and study it, and so it becomes a problem. So therefore, we need a guru parampara to say, okay, here's it further explanation of this. Now you can go on from there and you can be motivated again. So the very thing that was a motivating emphasis at one time may not be a motivating factor if emphasized at another time in our spiritual progress. Therefore you have to see how the Acharya is speaking according to circumstance and time. And this is what Prabhupada emphasizes over and over again, preaching according to time and circumstance. That's what he was doing preaching according to the time and circumstance. So the time and circumstance changed. The same emphasis at a different time and circumstance can be counterproductive, can atrophy one, rather than motivate one to go forward. Therefore, the need for Guru Parampara. Therefore, the need to say it a little differently, rather than just repeat exactly like a parrot what was said there. That's what takes the life out of it. If I'm to say it exactly the way Prabhupada said it, then I have to say it with the same spirit, according to time and circumstance, and taking all that into consideration and with realization. Just repeating what he said verbally. Is that all he did? Just memorize something and repeat it? Obviously, no. He understood the theory. 
He applied it practically in unique time and circumstance, backed by realization, therefore it had power. So if I'm to say to follow exactly like Prabhupada, then I have to have all those things, right? Not just a good memory. Tell the story. Just repeat the Lila. One of my godbrothers wrote a book about Lord Chaitanya, just basically repeating the whole Lila. And he wanted Dr. Kapoor to write an introduction to it or a forward to it. Dr. Kapoor was a disciple of Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthik Thakur. His introduction was really nice or forward, but then when he saw the book, he said, this is a useless book. Useless book. It's just repeating the pastime of Lord Chaitanya. He said, useless. He's not making any point here. and He's drawing any philosophical point out and applying it and, and so forth. We're not just storytellers. If that's all you can do, it means you really don't have anything to say. It's already there in the book. It's already told. I can go and read it. You understand? Yes? But many, many don't go and read it. So um, isn't it better to hear it at least? You know, because they're not reading it anyway. But, um, Something is better than nothing. So is that um, your response? Because some people criticize that how can you write a Bhagavad Gita when Prabhupada already wrote one? And um, you know, How can I not? I'm following my guru. That's what he did. Right? Did he want his disciples to write books? How can I not? That's my question. You say, how can I? Write something else, not what your guru already wrote. I didn't write what he wrote. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote it differently. Well, the same thing, obviously, can be applied to Prabhupada. Why Prabhupada wrote a commentary on, um, on anything? Why did you know Bhakti Siddhanta wrote a commentary on on Bhagavatam, some cantos of Bhagavatam, like I think tenth canto of Bhagavatam, and Prabhupada was writing his own commentary on Bhagavatam. Why did he do that? Prabhupada wrote his own commentary on Chaitanya Charitamrita, but Bhakti Siddhanta wrote a commentary on it, and Bhakti Vinod wrote a commentary. Oh, so, because that wasn't in English, so well, he you know, translated that. I know. Well, 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 well. Bhaktivinoda wrote a commentary on Chaitanya Charitamrita in Bengali. Bhakti Siddhanta, his student, wrote a commentary in Bengali. Bhakti Siddhanta wrote a commentary on Upadeshamrita. Prabhupada also wrote a commentary on Upadeshamrita. And why stop with Prabhupada? Prabhupada's my guru, but Bhakti Siddhanta is also my guru, right? Bhaktivinoda is also our guru in the whole disciple succession. So if anybody in disciple succession of the previous saints has written on a commentary on something, does that mean nobody else should write on it? Why did Jiva Goswami write a commentary on the Bhagavatam? Sanatana Goswami wrote a commentary on the Bhagavatam. Why did Jiva Goswami write one? Because there's a need. To, that's a sign of life. And there's a need to write. And that was written at the same time, same circumstances. What to speak of the necessity that arises due to certain change in the the environment and the way people think and so forth. Necessity to readdress the text in relation to the time and circumstance. Jiva Goswami wrote one at the same time and the same circumstance that Sanatana Goswami wrote one. Does no one have anything to say? The real result we're after is that someone will have something to say. That's what we want. Is there nothing more to say? There's not enough that we can say about it, such is the nature of the subject. Yes? I heard on one of those Prabhupada memoirs that um, a devotee asked Prabhupada, so 
Srila Prabhupada, are you writing something now, now that you finished, um, so whatever? And he said, well, I would like to write Bhagavad Gita. And the devotee said, but you already wrote Bhagavad Gita. He said, oh, I can write so many Bhagavad Gita's. Mm-hmm. So many commentaries, yeah. right. Bhaktivinod himself wrote two commentaries. Was it over a long period of time? I don't, I don't know how long, how far they were separated. I mean, I wrote a commentary on Bhagavad Gita as, as we're talking, and, and I think I, I would, sometimes I think oh, maybe I'll write another one. So many things weren't said there. So, so many things more could be said. So, yeah, that, that's, that's to be expected. That's, that's what we would hope for. That's what we should look for sign of growth and progress. That should encourage us. You say, who is he to write a commentary in the Bhagavad Gita? Well, the answer is read it, and then you find out. Is it a commentary or is it not a commentary? You know, they say, well, he's awfully proud to think he can write a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. And I say, well, you're awfully proud not to read it. What is pride? That's a whole other thing. Where's the pride coming from? When you're proud... You're not flexible. When you're humble, you're flexible. Interesting. Hmm? When you're humble, you can become fixed in devotion, and thus you'll be very flexible. Because to be fixed in bhakti, you have to be very flexible. But when you're proud, then you become inflexible. They're inflexible. They don't want to read my commentary because they say, well, he, who's he to write that? He's, he's proud. But it's really, Atmavan Manyate Jagat. Who are you to, not to read it? What is your position? All you can say is you could not write one. They're actually saying they know better than you do to not read it. So everything's in Prabhupada's book. Why do we need it? Right, they're saying they know better. So Prabhupada used to say to things like, because people would say things like this to Prabhupada. He would say, you cannot say that I cannot do. All you can say is that you cannot do. And once you say that you cannot do, then you have to sit down. You'd say, I have done. Yeah. So, what else? Yes. So, you're saying about uh, how devotees or religions sometimes have mean people in them? Hmm. So I was wondering why it seems, because I remember I was 15 I had this question, because I saw in the community that uh, people that were most, uh, went to my morning program every day, followed strictly, they weren't caring, you know, whereas people that were more humble and, you know, they weren't necessarily at a higher, from seeing, yeah, from certain levels or externally at least. They were the ones that would care and help you out if you got in a car accident and, you know, actually. So I thought, what, is it part of the process or why is it seems like ones that are following? Well, you know, so why does that happen? Because there's a way of following that's not really following. And then there's a way of following that's really following. And then there may be in between. So some people may not have been following as well. There may have been reasons for that, and there were certainly there were reasons for that. And maybe they were weak. Maybe that's one of the reasons they were weak. But in their weakness, they were able to have compassion for others who were weak and in need and so forth. And 
and so they were more readily able and uh, inclined to tender towards other persons who are weak. You know, compassion for the plight of others is really alive in one when that person has experienced something similar themselves. So it's not necessarily so that those who would be more kind, they may not have been more advanced in bhakti than those who were unkind and following strictly. But those who were unkind and following strictly weren't necessarily advanced in bhakti either. Because there's a way of following that's not really following. In other words, we call it niyamagra. You follow the rules, but you don't really understand the principle behind it and so forth. And, and people follow rules sometimes for wrong reasons, so that they don't have to think. And sometimes when you, when you break the rule, you have to think. And think about it, because you think, I broke the rule, how bad? And why did I do it? What is that rule? And, and then sometimes you can get a better understanding of the rule, why, and so forth. And you can, in apparently not following, you can be also growing more than one who is apparently following. It's possible. So sometimes people adopt the rules and it's for as a reason not to think and um, they don't understand the purpose behind it. They're not introspective. Introspectionists can be scary, right? <laughs> and spiritual life is kind of scary. It's kind of like intimidating in a way. It's, 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 it's not all just black and white. It's a lot of gray, actually. And you really have to think, and, and it's unpredictable, and because uh, it's alive. And that's what life is like. And so some people want to avoid life and the disconcerting nature of it, which is really the adventure of the whole thing. So they, they adopt a religion. It answers all the questions. And then these are what you do at this time, and that's what you do at the, the other time, and, and like this. And, and they end up not thinking, not living, really. And difficult questions come up. And they don't have to think about them. They've got an answer. It's right in the book. And then all the nuances of that circumstance that are troublesome, and it could be thought of it this way or that way. They don't have to think about it because they just got an answer in the book. Guru said this. And they think that that works for them. And that, that now they're on the spiritual path. And so, but really the spiritual path is dealing with all the nuances of life and confronting them and, uh, and, and all the gray and so forth. So there's a point where, you know, yeah, it's good to get on board somehow or other, anyway, or just follow. But if you're following properly, you're going to grow in that, and you're going to become introspective and thinking person, and think about why I'm following and what the import of that is. And, and then as you do that, you get realization. Then you can become a person who can adjust that according to time and circumstances in order to bring out the faith of others and cause the progress of others. So that's the ideal person who's really a devotee who practices and gets something from it, becomes introspective, understands it for what it is, and, and then he, he or she is also a caring person in, in all regards and so forth. And then there's those who, who don't. And, they, and, they, and of course, all this has shades of you know, some, some extent they do, some extent they don't, and, and so on and so forth. But in a, just in a real 
you know, black and white sense. There are those who just follow to get out of really what spiritual life is about. Spiritual life really forces one to think and stand up for one's opinions and for one's what one really feels. Sometimes people have conflicting feelings. They're following the process, and the teaching seems to say one thing, but they start feeling something else about, let's say, a social issue or something like that. And logic comes from that, and their own experience comes. Let's say, Scripture says, Kirata hunanda pulkasha. Kirata means that like, a, like a black person. Okay? There's a verse like this in Bhagavatam. It mentions a, a number of different types of races. That they're all like lower and uncivilized. It could be translated, black people are uncivilized. So you could just go with that. But when was it written? And, you know, maybe it was written at a time when, uh, you know, the black races were all uh, just uh, couldn't read or write, and they were in Africa or something. And so it's speaking about the, them. But now they're educated, and they, and they have facilities that people who wrote the books had when the black people in Africa didn't have. So you can just go, well, black people are all civilized. Yeah. And you can be, you know pretty mean guy. <laughs> or you can think about it, like we just did, you know, briefly for a moment, and come up with a whole different understanding. But some people don't like to think. They adopt a religion or a spiritual path, so they don't have to. And other people see that, and they go, yeah, he's just got religion as a crutch. But really, spiritual life, as I was saying last night, a real spiritual teacher is going to just push us like anything. Stand up on our own two feet, make decisions, and be dynamic in our application of it so that we don't get stuck along the way. Does that make sense to you? That's what happens. It's another side of that question that people equate accepting the scripture as being faithful to the path. They think this is Krishna conscious means, you know, you got to accept all these things in the books, and it says this, and well, we just got to accept it, otherwise we haven't learned how to think about Scripture. Like they haven't learned how to think spiritually, to think scripturally. They don't have uh, shastriyukti, shastriyukti nahi. They don't have the ability to understand the Scripture in a dynamic way and apply it and put it together and you know, just have a memorization kind of a thing. Therefore, they need association of people to do so they can learn to speak spiritually. Just like Sridhar Maharaj once told us that your Guru Maharaj told you not to think and I'm telling you to think now about all those things that he put inside of you when he stopped you from thinking. And he's left now and he's stored all kinds of things inside of your heart. Now I'm my service is to tell you to think about those things because now he's not here to tell you how to think about those things. So now you have to think about those things. You have to be that kind of a person that he was. Or if you're not, find somebody else who is and continue your tutelage. Do you follow? Good advice. Shri Marsh told me, excuse me, he said, in the absence of your guru, you have three choices. You must become a guru. Or... If you're not qualified to do that, then you follow someone who is. 
And if you can't do that, the third choice is get out of the way. Let the thing go on. If you don't have enough understanding, faith, to follow someone who is serving in that capacity, in the absence of a guru, then at least get out of the way. And don't be an impediment to it. Then if you do that, in time you'll be able to progress. But if you get in the way, then that's not an option. But people choose that. So all this really, in one sense, really brings home very strongly the point of how much we need good association, always, to keep it alive. And, and many of the devotees in the broader Gaudi community are really suffering from from not having that and, and from thinking that there's something wrong with that even. You see how wrong that is? To have association with a, a, an advanced devotee, a Siksha Guru, for example. There's so many of them thinking that's a problem, that's a heresy or something. It's, it's really so essential. That's how confused things can get. <laughs> well, we have a lot of work to do. Relief work, yes. Um, well, I'm still confused about um, this point of the scriptures, because you know how we say Prabhupada's books are the law books for 10,000 years. And I know sometimes I think, oh, I'd rather not hear it. Like things like that example you gave, and he said the Nishada race, you know, how these are these are all people that are thieves and they should just live up in the mountains. And, um, you know, about homosexuals and about women. And, um, and then, like you said, that feeling like, oh, I can't disagree with Prabhupada um, because these are the law books for the next 10,000 years and certainly he's qualified to present the truth. So, um, so I just um, still, still am a little not clear on how to do that, like adjust it and not feel like, oh, I'm, I'm disagreeing with Prabhupada or I'm, you know, not accepting what he said. Well, I, I think, again, that, that you have to understand that Prabhupada's books were written in consideration of time and circumstance. He never said that they would be the law books for 10,000 years, I don't think, except maybe in passing one time. It's not in the Veda base, is it? It's only the Bodhis talking about that statement. It's not written anywhere. But everyone, he said it once, and then everybody, went, one devotee said it's the most important thing he ever said. Yeah, so, I mean, if it was the most important thing he ever said, he would have said it quite a few times. The most important thing he said was, Krishna's the Supreme Personality of Godhead, you know, over and over and over again. <laughs> and, you know, if you study the scripture, that is the most important point of Tattva, of, of Bhagavatam. So, devotees have, a, you know, people in general, they have a tendency to latch on to things that work for them and make them the most important, that the most important statement. And, um, so, I mean, they can just see proper, yes, 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 there will be law books for the next 10,000 years. Yeah. But 10,000 years is a pretty long time. And a lot of things change. And, and while in his teaching, he writes repeatedly and, and, and shows by his example in terms of how he presented things, which were different from how his guru presented things in different circumstances, that this is the operative principle in presenting the, the scripture, that it has to be dynamic and live according to the time and circumstances. And that is an emphasis throughout the, the books, obviously. So if you understand that emphasis, then you look at the 10,000 years thing, then, you, then you, get, you see it in perspective for what it is. And you see it's not the Mahavakya, the, the Mahamantra of, you know, 
of everything he said, the main thing to repeat that he said and make a religion out of and, and let your life orbit around. I mean, if you work at the archives, it might be, you know, that might inspire you, you know. Yes, this is what we're doing. This is a, That means he's a yuga acharya. Aren't law books also interpreted according to time and circumstance? Yeah, even there's another way of explaining it. Law books are around for a long time, but they're explained differently at different times and different circumstances because new circumstances arise that weren't covered entirely by the law book. So then you have to look at the circumstance, look at the law book and make a determination. And then a new law comes or an adjusted law. So this is uh, very practical. So you have to be practical and understand this principle, time and circumstance. Let's speak of 10,000 years. It's been maybe 30 years since Prabhupada left and things have changed so much. In the world, things have changed. I mean, there was no email. Now people can't live without email. You know? They couldn't imagine. The world couldn't you know, imagine living without email. There was no email. It's just one you know, small example. Things are changing all the time, constantly, constantly. Would we'll speak of you know ten thousand years. Well, everything else is updated. Why not spiritual? I mean, the medical books you know said bloodletting and leeches, and you know they would cut your arm to cure some disease, and everything's updated. The medical books are updated. Children's books are updated. But these are, these are spiritual books, though. Well, Changeless. Hmm. But rice uh, was only around for a couple of years when Prabhupada came. You know, as, as far as social issues, you know, right. in America, you know, I mean, he's from India also, but take that into account. But you know, things like racism. And if Prabhupada went to a planet of homosexuals, how do you think he would preach there? What would he say? I'll tell you. What did he do when he came to America? You know how different America was in its social customs from India? So he preached entirely differently than he would in India. Entirely differently. Some of his godbrothers really found fault in him because he had ladies cooking in the temple. Ladies going on the altar. And men and women dancing in the same temple room. Now, you know, here is America, right? In the 60s, all right? Free love whole thing, right? And he's got ladies wearing dresses, you know, that cover their toes from the top of their head to the bottom of their toes in a temple, right? Before a deity with men, you know, on the other side of the room wearing a body-less outfit, you know, where you can see less of the body, you know, just a robe, right? And they're chanting a sacred mantra and playing, you know, ancient sacred instruments and dancing in, in ecstasy and giving up so many men are shaving their heads at a time when, you know, long hair was really in vogue. And they were giving up um, eating and drugs, which was just like also the thing to do. So he had them coming so far. And people in India were criticizing, he's got men and women in the same temple, same room, dancing together. That's how they looked at it. When we just think, is that crazy or something? <laughs> you know. So the point is that Prabhupada preached very differently, seeing the circumstances, and he adjusted and made it all work. He had somewhere where he wanted to go with it, and he found a beginning point. 
to get in there. So if he was to go to a planet of homosexuals, the first thing he wouldn't say was, you know, this is bad or something like that. You know, he would say, hmm, okay, they do it like this here. Okay, well, everybody has to transcend the sexual urge, ultimately, like every other physical urge, to be fully spiritual. So there's a, a gradual means to do that, and you've got to start somewhere. If you're going to control your urges and, and your mind and your, your senses and so forth, then you have to control this. It's a very prominent urge. So you'd find some way to regulate. Everybody accepts, for that matter, that sexuality should be restricted on some level. That's why everybody doesn't run around naked or just, as soon as they feel like it, jump on some lady or some lady just jump on some guy in a supermarket. <laughs> you know, like, you know, that's what have dogs do, right? Everybody acknowledges that it has to be restricted on some level. Everybody draws the line differently, perhaps. So we have our understanding, and we draw our line, and, and according to whom you're dealing with, you're going to figure out where to apply this principle. This is the principle. It's got to be restricted on some level. Here's why. So you guys start here, or you gals can start here, or whatever. So that's what he did, basically, in America. It was very different than in, than in India, where you would draw the line of what you would do. And though he might have said certain things at certain times, you know, like Manangopal said, it was very, you know, there are very different circumstances. I'll tell you something. If Prabhupada had many, many gay men and, and lesbian women joining and ready to dedicate themselves entirely to Krishna Sankirtan, he'd be writing the Bhagavatam purports some other way about it. Like with the sannyasis when they fell down, he, that, he wrote that in there too. Yeah. So those are, you know, dynamic circumstances that uh, require dynamic thinking. And, you know, what may be ideal is one thing. And what reality is is another thing. At the present moment, you've got to deal with the reality and help people become ideal. Yeah. Well, one statement I had heard a lot for a while was that right before Prabhupada left, he made this statement that what he, his concern was after he left, they would change what he had given. So devotees used that like anything. Yeah. And what that meant was different to each person, it seems. Prabhupada said, yeah, don't change anything. And I say change everything. Can we quote you on Prabhupada also said that his claim to success was that he did not change anything. He said it many times, did not change. I simply follow the order of my guru and not change anything. I haven't made up something. I've just given you as it is. But then if you look at it on the surface, it appears that he changed so many things. Like that example. Women cooking. In Bhaktisiddhanta's movement, the women in India, they weren't, weren't allowed to cook on the altar. So he seemed to change so many things. So you, obviously you have to look at that in a dynamic way. It means that you don't change the teachings. And there are principles, there are parameters within which the teachings lie. Then within that, those principles, there are many details that can and should be changed in order to deliver the principle according to time and circumstance. So the details can be changed. And Prabhupada writes about this in his Nectar Devotion, quoting Rupa Goswami. There are principles and there are details. The details can be changed. 
And the principles aren't the four regulative principles. Those aren't the principles. Which Prabhupada changed for different people in different circumstances. Like one of his principles, one of the four regulative principles was that devotees shouldn't have sex outside of procreation within the sacred institution of marriage. And I know a disciple of Prabhupada, a young man at the time who was really working hard and serving, and he couldn't follow that principle. And he told Prabhupada, and Prabhupada said, then do it and get it over with. Get on with things. So when I say those are details, although they, you know, he used to call them the four regular principles, those are just details. There's a principle behind those that those are seek to deliver. Those he didn't change, the principles, what Krishna consciousness is, the Siddhanta, he didn't change. The Siddhanta is not a commentary on, you know, social issues, to some extent it may be at, at some point, but it's the basic teaching of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. How to apply that, that will require a lot of change. And he showed that. Do you understand? That's how to answer that. No changes. And then people have this idea, no changes mean no change. He said it. God spoke it. Guru's representing God. God spoke it. Okay. Who could say it better? But our discipline succession shows that so many people are saying again and again the same thing in different ways. So this is really, this no change has really been abused. Yes? Um, I think a concern that comes up when you talk about change and more books and um, things like that are, I think people really want to keep the, or they're scared of the memory of Prabhupada is it lost. Or, you know, I feel like that's why, um, you know, devotees when they join ISKCON, they were encouraged to develop a connection with Prabhupada. You know, and we have Guru Puja every day, and we chant Pranam Mantra every day, and uh, our children are, you know, this is their first uh, concept of Guru. We teach our children a lot, devotees, and, you know, Prabhupada, this is your first conception of Guru. Mm -hmm. So how do, um, you know, I think people... You know, I thought it myself that you, you know, it's like you think, oh, the memory of Prabhupada will get lost, or let me answer that. I understand what you're saying. The institution of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsi Thakur was called Godiamat, right? After he left, he's Prabhupada. Okay, that was what they called him. This is a side point worth making. That sometimes. Disciples of our Prabhupada complain that some of Prabhupada's godbrothers didn't call him Prabhupada, right? And that, that happens. And it's valid to a point, but how do you think they feel when we don't call Bhaktisiddhanta Prabhupada? And normally, typically, Iskand devotees don't. So these are sentiments and sentiments should be addressed and so forth, and we should be sensitive to them. But in the name of someone not being sensitive to your sentiment, if you're not sensitive to theirs, and it's not just a one-way one street, right? But at any rate, my point is this. In Gaudiamath, Bhaktisiddhanta Sarsitakar was Prabhupada. When he left, then others had to carry on the succession 
And so there were many of them, or well, a number of them. And they carried on exactly the way you're talking about. In other words, they kept Bhakti Siddhanta Prabhupada in the center. That's how they did it. And so they kept things going exactly, in a sense, the way Bhakti Siddhanta did, in form. And that was their way of kind of keeping in the, in the center and in taking an understated position themselves, even though they were Acharya. You follow? And then they had the different missions and so forth, and they, after they became established and so forth, then they would interact with one another and... Uh, and the disciples would uh, of one would see the guru of others as um, as a siksha guru in a, in a general sense, and they were all under Prabhupada, Bhakti Siddhanta, and, and, and many of the disciples of Bhakti Siddhanta's disciples they thought like Iskon second generation devotees think of Prabhupada. Right, so it's the same phenomenon that what you're talking about. Now along comes. Prabhupada, <laughs> our Prabhupada. What did he do? He did something very different than them. He changed all kinds of things. He became the center of the whole thing. One of them, actually a disciple of, of one of Bhaktisiddhanta's disciples, who became an Acharya, told me, your guru has kept Prabhupada in the closet. He's talking about Bhaktisiddhanta. He told me this to my face. I mean, how insensitive. I wasn't challenging or anything. I was just going there to see that particular moth. This is how he attacked me. Your guru has kept Prabhupada in the closet. I said, my guru has put Prabhupada on every altar, in every house, you know, in every temple, all over the world. If it weren't for him, no one would know about Prabhupada. You understand my point? So, the same thing could have been said about Prabhupada, and it was, by this fellow, and other people kind of said the same thing, you know, in a different way, but the way, and to use your phraseology, the memory of Prabhupada will be lost. But Prabhupada, our Prabhupada, made the memory of Bhaktisiddhanta immortal. Had he not come and done what he did in a dynamic way, which drew attention to himself, which ended up having him being called Prabhupada, even, had he not done that, who would know about Bhakti Siddhanta, Saraswati Thakur, anywhere? So he really preserved the memory of Bhakti Siddhanta, Saraswati Thakur, and put him in the center in a dynamic way. Unfortunately, however, you have some of his disciples who have erred in the other way and become so Prabhupada centric that they, they kind of separate him from Bhakti Siddhanta, from Bhakti Vinod, and, and, and this kind of fanaticism starts coming and so forth. So that also can become a problem like that. So we shouldn't let that happen. But but I think, it, you know, there are going to be people, there are going to be devotees that do like that, that keep a Prabhupada-centric kind of a program, you know, in a formal way, in the name of that, and that's not bad. Like, I don't think that Bhakti Siddhanta's disciples were bad for doing what they did. But what Prabhupada did wasn't wasn't bad either. Do you follow? And the circumstances and the time warranted it also. And so I you know, I don't think there's any fear. Like for me, like I do that, and that's obviously what you're talking about, but you know, I'm I'm also building the only Pushpa Samadhi of Prabhupada outside of you know, India, the only second really authentic 
hope to build it anyway at some point. I have the plans and everything to make my monastery, you know, a place of pilgrimage, like in that regard. And you know, and I'm Prabhupada's disciple. So if I somehow become prominent in someone's life uh, or in the world, if I were to become prominent in the Gaudiya world, then what could speak louder than for, for Prabhupada that somebody was able to, in a dynamic way, the way he represented Bhakti Siddhanta, was able to represent him. I mean, in the end, you know, so many of them, Madhav Maharaj, Bon Maharaj, who kind of, you know, sometimes they resisted Prabhupada's success a little bit in the end. They said, he's done everything. Bon Maharaj said, he's almost he's near to last words. And Swami Maharaj, he's done. He's actually did it. He did fulfill the mission of Prabhupada, Bhaktisiddhanta. Hmm? So, how's that? You understand, right? And, you know, the way I do things, it's different than, you know, in ISKCON, where it's like Prabhupada-centric in a way. But it's been a, it's a result of circumstance also. One of the circumstances is, is that I came in touch with Sridhar Marsh. I've got to deal with that, you know. That's Guru Parampara. That's the succession, really. The real succession, substantial succession. So I've got to harmonize that. Now there's, there's two people in there. And then there's disciples of his that I was dealing with, the disciples of mine, and disciples of Prabhupada, and, and the Shingamars working with me, his disciples, and, and so we, we created this, you know, system and whatever. But I think that uh, it's a substance versus form kind of argument, and uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to the form too. Obviously, I was raised in that that form. But I see the downside of that, emphasizing that, you know, to death, which is, goes on in some places, in some quarters. And so I'm like, you know, on the other side, to make a point. Sometimes to make a point, you really got to, like, say something, you know. Like, what? He said that? You know, you got to say it like that. And, and then people pay attention. And then, then you get to bring out their objection, their doubts, and answer them. And it's all for preaching actually. So, all right. I think we've had enough discussion for this morning. We'll stop there. Srila Prabhupada ki jai. Srila Gopinath ki jai. Gaurna Tiranda ki jai. Sri Bhagavan Srimadev ki jai. Od Bhaktivinda ki jai. Od Premanand